what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.tv. My name is Alan. I am the co-director and co-founder of the Foot Candle Film Society and the Foot Candle Film Festival. And with me, as always, my co-host and co-founder and co-director. A lot of co's. Going a lot there. of co's. <laughs> my overall co, Chris Fry. How are you doing, Chris? Doing good. Uh, interesting films we have to talk about today. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So that's uh, you're listening to Foot Candle Films. Obviously, we're going to be talking about movies and films. So we actually have two reviews coming up on the show that we're going to get into. First up will be the latest film uh, from Greek director Chris. Help me. With the Yorgos name? Yorgos Lanthimos. Yorgos Lanthimos. I always get tripped up on that. But uh, it is The Favorite, starring uh, Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz, and Olivia Colman. Then we'll be moving on to a review of the latest Netflix sensation, Sandra Bullock's Bird Box. Uh, then after those two reviews, we will follow up with some movie news items and just some discussion topics about upcoming projects or interesting things in the film community. Followed by and concluding with uh, our recommendations for the episode. That's where Chris and I comb through all the films we've seen recently or got back in touch with recently and have decided to pass along to you, our audience, one film from each of us that we think might be worth checking out or revisiting if you have the chance. So, Chris, are we ready to get started? Yes, let's do it. All right. So moving on to our first review, the latest from Greek director, director of The Lobster and Dogtooth and several other films, Yorgos Lanthimos. It is The Favorite. The Queen is an extraordinary person. They were all staring, weren't they? I can tell even if I can't see. And I heard the word fat, fat and ugly. No one but me would dare, and I did not. She's been stalked by tragedy. Everyone leaves me. Dies. Chris, in the favorite, the latest from director Yorgos Lanthimos, we have the story of taking place of, of a very frail Queen Anne back in 18th century England. She's occupying the th- throne, and her very close friend, and, and kind of uh, someone who helps, helps her with her governmental duties, Lady Sarah, uh, governing the country in her stead while she's kind of going through some of these uh, more health-related issues and maybe some maybe some uh, mental issues uh, as well. But then a new servant, Abigail, arrives on the scene and becomes a charming to Queen Anne, and they become, ha- start to have a little bit of a friendship that interferes a little bit with the relationship with Sarah. And what follows is a film where we have the three women kind of playing off each other in the roles that they they have with one another. Which leads to the title, The Favorite, meaning there's a little bit of a competition for who might be the favorite of Queen Anne. Chris, we've talked about uh, Lanthimos films, a couple of them before, most notably The Lobster. Now, I never saw his last film, um, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. You did. I did. But we both saw The Lobster. It was highly rated by both of us. We yes. actually had it, I think, on, on our list of favorite films of the year. It came out a couple of years ago. But here we are with the favorite. Uh, it is a 2018 film. 
It was released in 2018. Uh, if it's any, got any award nominations, it'll be coming up in this Academy Award cycle. We just did our top five of 2018 at the last episode. Correct. This was one of the, the blind spots we had where we freely admitted we had not seen this film at the time of putting together those lists. So my question to you to start off our conversation. Sure. If you had a time machine and you could go back to that recording of our top five of the year after now having seen the favorite, would your top five look any different or not? And if not, tell me why not. I think it would look different. I'm not I'm not sure. I've only gotten to see this film, unfortunately, once. Um, but it would definitely figure into my top five. So that obviously means one of my existing top five would have to move. So you would <laughs> retroactively go back and find a place for the favorite in your top five of 2018. Yeah, and probably, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, to solidify which film gets booted down to the six through ten, I'd probably have to watch it again just to yeah. kind of solidify my feelings about it. Um but the film, for me, this is a rare instance where all the buzz surrounding a film, by the time I finally got to see it, it actually lived up to it. Okay. Uh, the all performances, right. Olivia Coleman at this point, as of us recording it, she has won a Golden Globe for her performance as Queen Anne. She won it for Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the category may be a little suspect, but the award is not to me. Um, she, she very much deserved it. Uh, she was really good. Um, and it's something to where, you know, acting in general good, but then just what she was able to do with her face, mannerisms, her walking, because apparently Queen Anne had bunions and or gout and or who knows what else um, going on. And yet she just she was doing a lot of acting. Um, and so I feel like, you know, the award was justified. Other people that kind of helped her out in the acting category. Uh, yeah. Emma Stone. Rachel Weiss, both really good. I would hate to have to be on the committee, the Oscar committee that says, okay, supporting actresses, who we got here? Okay, well, we don't want two people from the favorite. Which one's going to go? Like, I that would be tough. And I mean, some people have made their argument. I think you made it last night when we watched the film with our film society. You know, you kind of think in a way, all three of these are leading because they all share a lot of screen time. They all carry a lot of the weight of the movie as far as, you know, plot and everything. So how do you decide who's lead and who's you know, supporting? Yeah. I'm glad that's not my job, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but um, they all did um, a really good job. And some people that I feel like haven't gotten a little bit of notice. I mean, I've heard a little bit of buzz, but I thought they also did a good job in their roles. Uh, Nicholas Holt, who mm-hmm. the only thing I really know him from is Mad Max Fury Road. Um, but he does a good job playing Harley, who's this uh, political dude. <laughs> he's he's the head of a political party, one yeah. of the sparring political parties in England. Uh, a little more on the flamboyant side and manners and dress, but makeup and uh, the he was he was enjoying this part. I think Nicholas Holt was. I loved every moment he was on on the screen because I thought his part was just really entertaining. Oh, and absolutely. he was having a great time doing it. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm not, I know the name, I know his face. I've probably seen him in other things, but the thing that most comes to mind is Mad Max Fury Road. So to see him in something like this, which is very stylized, but I mean, you couldn't be more completely opposite than Mad Max than to have a period piece. Yeah. So, um, that was, that was fun. Do you know that Nicholas Holt, just, I mean, a little, just a little side note on okay. Nicholas Holt. Um, he was the one who played the young boy in the film about a boy with Hugh Grant many, many years ago. Wow. That was him. And I liked that movie. Yeah. I would have never 
put that together. Yep. I'll have to go back and watch that again, actually, because that's kind of a, I don't think that's ever come up in one of our recommendations. No. Um, but I'd, it's a good yeah, movie. It is a good movie. And uh, he's that, that he was the boy. Now, since then, I think the, the, probably the biggest role he's had, which he, I can understand not remembering it, uh, he plays Beast in the latest X-Men movies. That's the one who turns uh, into the blue furry guy. That's yeah. him as well. So just so you okay. know, there's a little connection there okay. from that. But anyway, that's what he's been busy doing. But yes, back to your review. So <laughs> um, also, the only thing I know this guy from is Sherlock. Um, yeah. Mark Gaddis, he plays Lord Marlborough in the movie, who is the husband of to Rachel Weiss's person. And just, I guess he's just doing a very stereotypical British aristocrat type guy. Yeah. But man, does he do it so well. <laughs> oh, he um, he's good. kind of he playing good. Mycroft, which is the character he plays in Sherlock Holmes. He's kind of doing that here. <laughs> kind of yeah. in a period, he's a period piece Mycroft or something. I don't know. I just thought he was a lot of fun. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed seeing him do that. Mm-hmm. I thought he was, thought he was awesome. Um, before I get into a lot of like details, Alan, what's your overall, I'll throw the question back to you. Mm-hmm. Um, would you rearrange your top five from our previous show? Yeah. Yeah, I would. Uh, actually, it would be number three for oh, me. I've already, already kind of figured out. I've already figured out. It would be my number three film. Okay. Um, that does mean, unfortunately, I think I'm bumping out Won't You Be My Neighbor and mm. Mary Poppins Returns from mm. that five slot. Okay. Going down a, a peg, but um, I still think, you know, I've got Stars Born and American Animal still above the favorite but the favorite is a good firm number three in my book right now. I really had a great time with this film. I thought it was outrageous. I thought it was very, very funny and biting. I thought the acting was wonderful by all three of the female leads. Um, the direction, we'll talk about some of the more uh, interesting stylistic choices of the film in a moment. But okay. it was just a pleasure to watch, even in the moments that were somewhat disturbing or some of the moments that are maybe a little more uh, where you wove in some real drama into it. It was still a joy to watch. I think just from the way they framed the shots, the way they used the set around them, the the, the actual palaces they shot in, right. uh, very uh, scenes were always. I mean, just because we are shooting in manners that uh, in palaces where there's typically a lot of ornate detail and everything, they just soaked all that in. Every frame just seemed to have so much detail going on. It was just really fun to watch. But um, I think probably my favorite takeaway is just some of the real biting humor and just some of the real, it was really funny, mm-hmm. but also funny in a very dangerous way. So sure. it was a, a joy to, it was an evil, evil amount of fun to have in a film. And I really had a good time with it. So something going into the film, I also thought there were a lot of, you know, funny parts, something going into the film I was a little worried about mm-hmm. was Knowing director Yorgos Lanthimos and basing a lot of it off the lobster, you know, his films, but also Dogtooth and Sacred Deer, his films tend to be dark. Yeah. And, you know, that's just kind of the way, you know, he class society and like how people function in certain social structures. And that's kind of a big deal of his. Um, and I was worried that the humor, I wouldn't be able to laugh at all because it would be so dark and so kind of sinister and undercurrent that it would kind of take the fun out of the film for me. And I knew I would probably like it because of his track record, but I was, I was a little concerned. It wasn't a problem at all with me um, because, mm-hmm. and I think it's because each of the characters who, and we can talk about the degrees to which we feel sorry for them or to which we mm-hmm. think they're manipulating, you know, Queen, Queen Anne, Sarah and Abigail, they all have points where you can sympathize with them, mm-hmm. but they also... <laughs> 
most of them, I would say, have points where you're like, no, you are being very manipulative. You are taking advantage of others. You're a terrible person. Yep. Um, or I am lodging this complaint. You know, I'm just making this judgment, quick snap judgment. Nope, you're terrible. There's no you know, mm-hmm. salvation for you. You're terrible. Um, but I think that works to the script, which uh, Lanthimos did not write, but uh, Deborah Davis and... And this is actually one of the, I think this may be the first film Lanthimos has directed that he didn't write. He did not write. Yeah, I believe I read that somewhere. So that's kind of interesting to see him adapting somebody else's work and still, this still had a very much of a Lanthimos feel to it. There was no doubt about it. Yeah, Yeah. I was kind of surprised to learn Mm -hmm. that he didn't write it because it just seems like that's kind of his mode of operating. Um, But I I did appreciate the humor. I did like it. I think that, um, what would you say as far as, how you think the script, the acting, the director, and how they manage these characters so that I feel like for the most part you could find sympathy, but then also yeah. kind of discount them. I think the one per like, okay, let's <laughs> fun exercise. Sympathy rating. Yeah. Who do you feel the most, oh. do you feel like is most the victim? And then who do you think is just like the person who you're just like, no, well, they should be cast. I feel out. like Queen Anne was the most sympathetic character. Okay. I, Honestly, I don't ever feel like she was really ever portrayed as manipulative or as bad intentions at all. She was just in a very, very tough spot. She's gone through so much trauma in her life. And that's hit on one of my favorite scenes, which is probably the one scene in the film that's probably the most tender and has no outrageousness to it. There was no biting to it. It was Mm. just true, pure human emotion was her introducing Abigail to her collection of rabbits and explaining the symbolism of the rabbits. It's a great scene. Uh, It's a wonderful scene. And just both of them played off so well. And it's like for a moment, we've been laughing. We've been kind of cringing. It's like all this. And then they get to this moment and you're just like, uh, some of this just drops. And you're just like, wow, okay. Queen Anne is a human being. And this is, she's been kind of played for laughs up to this point. Because she's kind of fumbling and, you know, a little overdramatic about some things and all. But then you realize what she's gone through and how, what the rabbits symbolize. And we're like, oh, okay, I get it now. And it changes your whole perspective of her for me, almost for the entire rest of the movie. So I love that scene. But I definitely think on the sympathy meter, she's she's the top for me. The other two, there are moments, yes, I have some level of sympathy for them. But I don't. I don't. I definitely don't end the film with any sense of sim, uh, of sympathy for either of them. I think they both kind of had their own doing. One of the two, I think, comes out better at the end than the other, and I think that's part of the plot of the story is to show that uh, what one may be trying to strive for is maybe not what they ultimately really need. There's a few lessons to be learned along the way. I thought, you know, um, but not the type of thing you wouldn't say. This movie's an after school special. No, no, definitely not. And uh, you don't need a but um, you're right in that you don't really the film does a great job of not making you love or absolutely hate either of the two women in question i think you it it plays with your emotions back and forth quite a bit even abigail who this is the best thing i think i've seen emma stone do Mm -hmm. just because i really feel like she's playing an interesting role and just having fun doing it just like many of the characters are but even her role which you know from almost the least likable she, she is She's you, the most despicable. And you almost <laughs> dislike her from the very first scene you see her in because you can almost tell that she's planning something from very, very early on. Hmm. 
but she still even has some moments where you catch her with a facial expression or you catch her after she's just said something to someone and she's turned and walked away and you get a sense of, Ooh, she is just kind of figuring this out as she goes. And Ooh, I don't know if she, she may think she's getting herself into a deep hole here. So you Mm -hmm. start to have a little sympathy at times, but then by the very next scene, she's completely whisked that away and done something to make it, uh, to make you lose that sympathy. So it's a, it was just three really fun parts to play. I'm sure the actresses all had a great time with it. Um, I've seen them in award shows, the three of them kind of palling around and kind of having fun with each other. (laughs) And it makes me think, I think they kind of had a good time putting this, uh, uh, performing in this film. Uh, and and like I said, it shows, uh, it, 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 it's, it's infectious to watch all three of them on screen. I feel like after watching this film, you touched on something, which I definitely want to touch on the cinematography and kind of Mm -hmm. the look of the film and how that added to the film's overall experience for me. It definitely did because the the shots in this film, you, know, you do see a lot of palaces, a lot of interior courtrooms, a lot of you know, just a lot of luxury, basically, mm-hmm. to kind of sum up. You know, a lot of really fancy bedrooms, a lot of really fancy sets, but they're not sets; they're actually you know places, real places, sure. apparently, according to the credits. And I think if it had been filmed differently, it would have seemed like every other period piece, and it would have kind of gotten numb to it. Mm-hmm. Instead. There's been a lot of talk about this in reviews. The way it was shot, they use a lot of like fisheye lenses mm-hmm. so that things are just – sometimes they are very distorted. Other times they're just slightly – you can kind of tell something weird's going on with like the edges of the frame. And that to me just kind of – that kind of heightened the experience and made it more interesting and – made a lot of times during the opening they have this opening where they're showing a duck race which we'll get to some animal <laughs> comments here in a second because mm-hmm. it's kind of a theme with lanthimos but um it just kind of heightened their grotesqueness of high society oh, yeah. and instead of you know showing this and showing like oh look at the fancy don't you envy these people don't you wish you were them with all their money and their power oh these grand old days of the 18th century but no instead they just made it look really disgusting yeah. and grow you know the they made the men look stupid with the big wigs and they did a lot he did some in addition to the fisheye stuff he did some kind of slow motion and it just mm-hmm. made it look real garish and i thought oh, yeah. that was a really interesting touch absolutely well and i think too you know the fisheye lens being used so much i i think we had a great discussion during one of our screenings about how it almost gives you a sense of being a voyeur mm-hmm. almost like you're looking through a peephole in a in a in a door where the the view on the other side is distorted and kind of that fisheye view. It's almost like we're peering into something. We're seeing a lot more behind the scenes than the public would normally see. Even in the sense of the palaces, you're right. All the shooting in the palaces is really great to see all the architecture and the, the design work around it. What I'm more fascinated are, are by there's a tunnel almost oh, yeah. leading between like the library sitting room and the queen's bedroom that her aides would kind of shuttle her back and forth in the wheelchair. And it was like pitch dark, but just like candle lights lit along the really kind of just a complete different view of what you see in palace life. Mm -hmm. And even uh, in the bedroom, there is a a door built into the wall where it's just the tapestry is there. You don't really see the door. The door is almost a hidden door. And I know I've, I've seen these in a lot of, recreations of actual palaces. These are actual things that were there, the doors, but the door leading to that tunnel, it's just like a secret door almost. And it becomes a pretty big part of the film. There's several dialogue scenes happening around that door. Well, and the the scenes of dialogue or the scenes that happen in hallways that are not secret passageways and things that happen there contrasted with, 
things that happen in the secret yeah. passageways or time they use the secret passageways and times they don't. And it just, it's, you could almost do a doctoral thesis on times the passageway <laughs> were used and what that means as opposed to things that happened out in public in other hallways. Yeah. Like, that's I know true. there's a lot, lot to chew on there. A lot going on there. Yeah. You mentioned about animals and, you know, just like with the lobster, uh, there's animals play a pretty critical role in this film. We have uh, ducks making ducks. A, a racing and kind of being representative of the the male aristocrats and just kind of their foolishness whimsies of racing ducks because that's what they want to do with their free time. <laughs> You've got um, rabbits. As we mentioned, Queen Anne has quite a collection of rabbits that have a very stated symbolism late, you learn later in the film. I like um, the fact that at least in IMDb, one of the credits is for Horatio. And oh. his thing is fastest duck in the city. Fastest duck like, in the city. Actually, that's I true. I don't know. The credits for this film are kind of crazy and kind of hard to read. Yeah. And I don't know if they actually put that in the credits or not, but I sure hope they did. <laughs> yep. Because just having Horatio, fastest duck in the city, yep. like that's kind of awesome. Uh, birds play a big role because there's a lot of bird shooting going on in the film. Um, and even uh, lobsters <laughs> kind of make a yeah. little cameo appearance at one point. Uh, kind of a, could be seen as a little wink-wink to maybe uh, his past film. but. Sure. So again, animals playing a critical role, just like they were in The Lobster. I, I do think you could look back, and we won't go into spoiler territory, but I do think each of those animals have, represents something, represents some aspect of this this royal life. And uh, you know, you, the ducks, I think you've alluded to, kind of this male folly. It's like, well, you know, it's just kind of a ridiculous thing to think about racing, but yet, hey, we live in a palace and we can do whatever we want to do, and this is how we want to spend our time because. We're rich and we're all these other things. We're all fanciful. Um, so I, I love the use of animals. I thought it was great and uh, seems to be a theme he likes to carry through a lot of his films. Yeah, and I'm curious. Um, I feel like a lot of his themes could be reduced down to something as simple as the lobsters as used in this movie. Mm -hmm. Oh, let's use them as pets. Oh, and then whoever wins, we either do eat them or we don't eat them. I don't remember. Well, it's like we're going to erase them and then we're going to eat them. Eat both of them. I think so we're going to really eat matter. both of them. Actually, yeah, it doesn't that's matter. Even, that speaks even more <laughs> yeah, to Lanthanos' like, philosophy. Matter. We're going to have fun with them, but then we're just going to eat them anyway. So we'll treat them <laughs> like pets for a second and kind of have fun and then we'll eat them. Yeah. Because I think the themes of that kind of relate to themes in the lobster. And it's like animals is something we'll have as pets. We treat nicely at some point, but then it, we can turn gruesome on them in a second. Just like I'm sure some of these ducks end up being eaten. Sure. You talked about the cruelty of the doves, I guess it's their yeah. shooting. Mm -hmm. And there's no point other than just like, Oh, it's fun. And target practice. Oh, that's a lot of fun. You know, just, mm -hmm. I think that just says a lot. And I think he seems to be interested in kind of what that says about the humans how they treat the rabbits animals. really seem to have the elevated status of animals and there's Rich a role they play only for queen Anne for one person. That's right. You're yeah. right. Um, the not elevate for anybody else. Sympathetic with, mm -hmm. I think you and I are on the same page with them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, uh, I will say, yes, I think, uh, all the things you've commented on, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, some, some people will wrestle with the ending and again, not, we won't go into any details on it, but it does end in what I consider to be a little more of a Lanthimos style ending where it's, it could be seen as a little unsatisfying because it doesn't really give you any resolution, anything, but yet I also think it didn't need to, I think it ended on a, it ended on probably the most, uh, serious note of a film, even though for a film we've been laughing with uh, for most of the film as well. So I admire it for ending, ending it the way it did. Although I know it's going to probably rub some viewers the wrong way, but 
Um, there's a lot you can read into the ending, which I think is is worthy of discussion afterwards too. So. Yeah, I felt like it was pretty. I guess, and maybe I'm judging it from a Lanthimos perspective. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was pretty cut and dry, pretty yeah. normal. Yeah, it was a very cinematic ending. It was, and it I was felt like, and again, it amped up the drama a little bit, maybe maybe to a higher level than we've seen most of the film. So it's kind of an interesting tonal note to end on, where sure. you have a film that's so. Yeah, deliciously evil and biting humor and all. And then you end with something that becomes a little more poignant, a little more right. emotional. And uh, that was interesting. But I think, I mean, we'll just suffice it to say there's shots of rabbits. And I yeah. think what that's saying, and I think you can very easily draw a conclusion as far as what sure. that's trying to say. So it was very cinematic, you know, mm-hmm. not a stated ending, but to me it really worked. And of course, I guess once people see this movie, they know the type of movies I like. They'll be like, oh yeah, that's a Chris Fry ending. <laughs> so yeah, sure enough it was. Um, I liked it. It was good. I thought the score was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, both beautiful at times and extremely jarring and nerve wracking at times. But I think like you even mentioned at our screening last night, that's it's more that to keep you on edge and to kind of mm-hmm. poke you is what you, I think you described it as a... Uh, that that the director seems to be intent on doing, even with down to the score. Um, use of audio cues. There's a lot of background audio at times that not always is obvious, but things are going on. Uh, most notably for me, there was a scene where uh, Abigail and the Queen kind of start to become friends for the first time. Mm-hmm. And they have a dance scene where the two of them are dancing together. But right. the whole time they're dancing loud gunshots are going off in the background because somebody is shooting doves in the background and it's very pronounced to get your attention that, you know, there are gunshots happening while this is now this friendship has started to form kind of hinting at the danger. That's also along with that happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Even, I don't know, did you pick up on the fact that during the, the opening Fox searchlight uh, fanfare, the Fox song that da 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 was being produced by chickens. I didn't realize it was ch- I noticed or I ducks maybe. I'm not sure. Noises. It was bird. Heard, if you listen carefully, that actual little fanfare is being sung by these animals chirping or, or squawking. Very awesome. very light in the background, but of course. Part of the joy of me having seen it a second time now, I can see it a <laughs> little bit clearly. Just the use of audio, even sometimes very slight. There's a scene where uh, Lady Sarah is is leaving the palace to go somewhere, and you actually hear some faint screams in the background, mm-hmm. and it's just I couldn't quite figure out what they were. But after seeing a second time, you realize it's doing a little foreshadowing of some stuff. It was just. The use of audio is really pretty amazing, I thought, throughout the film. So yeah, had a good time with that as well. Yeah, there's just a lot. I think there's so much to talk about in this film. You could you know, pick out so many different scenes to talk about. And that, for me, just strengthens it um, among the films that came out in 2018. So, yeah, it's I'm not sure where it will be lodged. Somewhere in your five. five. But it'll be, it'll be somewhere. And I'm pretty clear with it being number three right now for me. I'm very, very happy with that choice. <laughs> so that is The Favorite. We are both big fans. Highly recommended. Um, I will say if you have seen any of Langthamos' other films, this is probably the most accessible. Meaning, you know, it does have its... It's a unique style to it, absolutely. But as far as from a mainstream audience standpoint, uh, I, I could see mainstream audiences getting a little bit more out of this film than maybe some of his other films. Sure. Um, so I will say, I hate saying mainstream because it's definitely a unique enough piece of work. I don't consider it that. But for it to be quite as acclaimed as it is right now with uh, 
you know, Academy Awards and Golden Globes and all for it to get that kind of notice. It's obviously resonating with a much larger audience than he's ever had for his other films. So, all right. Well, that is the favorite. It is still playing in some select cities and smaller run, um, but it will be one we keep our eye on when the Academy Awards are nominated or nominations are listed here in the next coming weeks. Uh, but Chris and I are both big fans. Top five film for us for 2018. So we recommend if you have a chance to see it, we would ask that you certainly do so. So, Chris, we're going to move on to our second review, which is the latest film, original film on Netflix. This one having generated, supposedly in the first weekend, 45 million users watching this film. This is the latest one starring uh, Sandra Bullock. It is Bird Box. What's going on? People describe seeing an entity that takes on the form of your worst fears. Oh, my God. What are you looking at? What did you see? What is wrong with you? Please stop it! Listen to me. We are going on the trip now. It's going to be rough. If you hear something in the woods, you tell me. You hear something in the water, you tell me. But under no circumstance are you allowed to take off your blindfold. Did you hear that? The creatures. Bird Box is the most recent release, although that's hard to say. Probably just while we were recording this, they've released 10 other things on Netflix that are, <laughs> yeah. that are newer than Bird Box. But as you mentioned, 45 million people in the first week supposedly watched this when it was released back in December, um, which is one in three Netflix users. So you consider all the people that have an account, one out of three people. I know with my family, all four of us sat there and watched it. Um, there's I, I had two in my house. So, okay. you know, you start to do the numbers. You could be looking at supposedly over 100 million people having watched this film in the first weekend. It's pretty impressive. Possibly, yes. Uh, there are rumors that they are already talking about a sequel. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm shocked. Why would they do that? Yeah. Um, Alan, you know, with other Netflix releases, you know, there's Roma. Uh, we've talked about recently on the show. Also, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Uh, we kind of batted around what we thought Netflix distribution of these films, you know, benefits, pluses and minuses. And where do you think this falls as far as why it was to a Netflix movie and or to Netflix was chosen as the distributor? Why did Netflix buy this movie? Why did they put it out? How do you think it fares with maybe their strategies for the other two films? And more importantly, um, does it figure into your top five of the year now that you've seen this and all the buzz and everything that was around it, which yeah. I don't think you can talk about this film without talking about Netflix had to issue a retraction or kind of a statement saying, please do not do the bird box channel or, you know, <laughs> please try to be smart and not go out and do stupid things with a blindfold. They actually released statements on this yeah. because apparently things were happening. Um, I just saw something today when we were recording this about some person got in a car and supposedly drove with a blindfold and got in a wreck. What people? So. Those are the same people that were eating Tide Pods and doing other things I guess, there. I guess so. so. Well, okay. So you asked a lot of questions. Let sure. me kind of pick off the easy ones first. Is it in my top five? No. Um, <laughs> did I like the film? And not particularly. Um, I thought it was fine, which is kind of the curse of death when you talk right. about films. It wasn't bad to where I can laugh about it or joke about it. 
but it was not good either where I have a burning desire to either see any of it again or really it missed the mark for on a lot of fronts for me that I can specify in a moment. Um, why was it so successful? Well, I think it's a, it's a perfect storm of, of reasons. You had a movie a few months ago or last summer, maybe that was a quiet place Mm -hmm. that did really good box office. Um, I think it was rated PG 13, but it was still a movie theater film that people had to pay seven, eight, ten dollars to go see. Right. It did fairly well. Um, it was kind of a high concept, very similar to this film where society is kind of uh, broken down and there's been some sort of enigmatic force that's uh, hard, terrifying, terrifying people and, you know, killing people. Right. And you don't really know quite what it is a lot of the time in a quiet place. It's all, you can't make a noise. Cause if you make a noise, they'll hear you. They come kill you in bird box. The whole plot is, well, if you see this thing, whatever it is. Oh, we'll get to that. If you see it, it will cause you to, do some damage to yourself and others around you. So obviously the goal is you don't want to see anything when you're outside. So you have your blindfold on. So again, very similar conceit. I think the reason this film got such traction is a quiet place is a good movie. I liked it. Yeah. We um, reviewed it on the show. We did. I think. It was a good movie and, but it cost 10 bucks to go see it. Netflix, you pay nine ninety nine a month and you've got access to all these films and oh, Hey, Sandra Bullock's in a brand new film. And it's kind of similar to a quiet place. Oscar winner, Sandra Oscar Bullock. winner. It's similar to a quiet place and it's got a horror element to it, but it's also a mystery. What's going on? Who's doing this? It just had enough of those elements together. And I think it hit at the right time of the year with it being winter time and holiday season. Everybody's like, Hey, that sounds good. Let's watch a movie. Yeah, we don't and have to get in the car and go out to the theater. Right. We can just turn our TV on. It checked the most number of boxes on the marketing demographic wheel. Mm-hmm. That is just, a, to me, it was a perfect storm. And everybody decided to go see this movie all the same weekend. Um, but again, getting back to a review of it, um, I thought it was lacking. I, I liked the premise. Mm-hmm. I like the conceit of it all. I love the kind of the idea of an unknown force that's causing people to, to act in disturbing ways and people having to figure out how to deal with society to, to work around that. All that I liked. I just felt the implementation of the film, the way they portrayed these things to us and the way we, we followed along was, was really disappointing. Um, I thought Sandra Bullock was pretty good. I thought in she the was role. pretty good. I mean, given what she was given to work with, I actually liked the fact that, you know, the scenes you see her, the film is done in kind of a split time. We're seeing both the outbreak of this situation and then it's being juxtaposed with today, I guess, or present time where the situation, river, the river journey, the river journey, which is I, we take it to be like a while later, several years later, five years later, five years later than what we see earlier in the film. Right. But the whole film is flipping between these two time periods because we're learning both how the situation got to where we are. And where we are now, the danger we have to face. I like the fact that in the five years later, she's portrayed as kind of a, a tough woman who's kind of brutal with kind of her, her kids kind of and yeah. all that. But she's having to do that out of necessity. Mm-hmm. You get it. I mean, you look at it and you're like, okay, yeah, they're not making her likable at all. But I understand why. She is all about survival. She is all about the safety of her, her, of her, of her family, even if it means that they hate her and don't like her and you cringe when you hear her talk to them, but it's all about safety. And I like that choice they made with her character. Um, yeah, I, I was surprised to learn that this film, the idea from it, it was actually adapted from a novel. Yeah. And I think in a novel, 
a lot of those ideas may work a lot better. You mentioned the creature that you don't see, and I'll there again. I'll make a say. I'll we'll address that here in a second. Yeah. But that was something that in a novel it kind of works because it's easier. I think with words it's easier to build suspense, and yeah. but in a movie it just comes off as irritating sometimes yes. if you never end up seeing the creature at all yeah Although i kind of like some of that sometimes well, it's like that's not the point of the movie is to provide this scary creature it's supposed to be more psychological and more yeah. working on some so but we'll we'll just that in a second but that that was one of the things i was you know about this film that i was kind of i kind of liked but i was kind of surprised by that it was based on a novel and i would have thought some of the screenplay would have been better or would have been would have yeah. been tighter i will say the Journey down the river. I kind of liked that framework. Um, yeah, it was the flashback and kind of the explanation stuff. Despite having a lot of really good actors, oh, they sure. had John Malkovich, Sarah Paulson, Jackie Weaver, Travante Rhodes, who had been in Moonlight. This is like another thing that he's in. That's he and Sandra Bullock are kind of some of the more uh, key players mm-hmm. in it. Um, it was unfortunate that I felt like those flashback scenes were kind of more kind of cobbled together and they didn't really, they weren't flowing very well. Um, I I agree with you. I actually kind of, I thought the flashback, which is about half the film or a little more than half the film was pretty bad. I mean, I thought, you know, the pacing of it, the way it was written, I, I I don't, there are so many questions. I don't understand (laughs) plot machinations. I don't understand the rationale for characters doing the things they do in that first half. I actually appreciated more the, present period of the film where they're on the river Mm -hmm. journey. I got it. That made a lot more sense to me. I understood what they, what they were trying to do. So yeah, it was a little bit of a split film for me. I I, I wish the flashback portions, which are the most enlightening to let us know how we got to where we are, were have, were better written and, and better handled. Yeah. All right. You tell me when we're getting in the nitpicky uh, criticisms, cause I'll, I'm I'm ready to go. Nitpicky stuff can happen anytime. I'll just say that something, that I learned about this film after the fact, because you and I had mentioned we were going to review this and you kind of gave me your general impression. So I kind of knew where you fell. Turns out the monster that we don't see, apparently I had thought it was done on purpose. It was like a style thing and they were trying to make it more psychological. Well, it turns out that apparently they did actually have a creature. And according to reports online, the first time Sandra Bullock saw it come on set she laughed at it because it looked like a long, fat baby. <laughs> that mm-hmm. was her. And she just said that, like, she couldn't take it seriously, like, was just laughing at it the whole time. So then they kind of made this decision, okay, we're going to keep it more cerebral. And just, so it was like a funny creature design, which I, I can say that's kind of the danger you run. If they were to show it and it was that bad, then no. that would have, like, taken this movie down another couple of pegs for me. I'll tell you what, with the creature, okay, I, it did not bother me that we don't really see it. Sure. Because actually that kind of plays into the conceit of the film. The whole thing is that when you see this thing, mm-hmm. it affects you in such a way. And it affects two different types of people different ways, which I also thought was probably something that I'm, I'm sure was better explained in the book. The book. Not explained here at all. Sometimes and it, it just left it as like commit suicide and then others, it just makes them go crazy. And it kind of has to do with their mental ability and their mental health at the time. It seems like, but again, glossed over, not explored. And I don't need to have everything spelled out for me, but I need to have some, I need to have some belief that this wasn't just some convenient plot device you put in there to, to have some different drama take place, but not seeing the creature I'm okay with. 
it's not understanding the slightest single thing about what this creature is or represents is what bothered me. Hmm. It's we're told at one time that it, you see your greatest fear maybe. And that's what causes that. But then I've also saw other characters throughout the film refer to it as they saw it. And then they started almost smiling like they were entranced by it. I don't understand any of the (laughs) machinations of what was going on with this creature. And again, I don't need it all spelled out to me. I just need some strand of something to grab a hold of to understand what we're facing here. Okay. And then there's the whole mechanics of, all right, so is this creature only outside? So they only wear blindfolds to keep from seeing the creature when they go outside. But of course, when we're treated to any kind of glimpse of where the creature may be, it's like swirling leaves and wind. Doors are opening. Things are happening. Is this creature constantly just always trapped outside and can never come inside houses? And, you know, it's little things like that. Just kind of enough things to kind of make you question yourself during the whole film. And that should not be the way you watch a film like this. You shouldn't be saying, (laughs) you were just, what about, why is this? And why is that? Why is it this group of people, happened to all hole up in this house when this thing started breaking, all hell started breaking loose. They're totally comfortable getting into cars and going to grocery stores and raiding places to get stuff, but yet they all feel like they're confined to this house and they can't go anywhere else. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me either. It's like, <laughs> you, you don't know each other. Why are you stuck here if you're fine going to grocery stores and other places? Right. But yet you feel like you're all like this almost like odd couple arrangement of people, these very demographically diverse characters all come together. And it's, it just seemed very convenient and forced. So when a film has you asking enough of those questions throughout and not, I was more concerned about those things than I was about the actual fear and story of where they're going. That to me was a bad recipe and that where it just didn't work for me. So, well, I, I will say the director, Suzanne Beer, she has won an Oscar for In a Better World, um, which is a foreign film from a couple years back, I think 2016 maybe. I don't know. But anyways, um, so she is a capable director. She's gotten Mm -hmm. awards. I think it all comes down to the script or the, the screenplay that was generated from this novel. I'm sure maybe, like you said, the novel explains it better. Or not even explaining it, but just gave you a little more uh, something, to, uh, work something with. to work with around it to kind of understand what this situation was and what they're facing. Yeah, And I think um, something that I th- would be interesting to see, uh, people, listeners, if you've read the book, maybe you can write in and tell us. But there was a thread online about how um, there was a theory that this film was about, it was kind of hinting at and was about racism mm. and about how people, which, you know, you mentioned touching on how, you know, all these different people from all over the place and kind of thrown together in the house. This is the John Malkovich part with the flashback. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were saying it's a whole thing about people not wanting to see racism. It's everywhere and it's rampant, but they put the blindfolds on to try to ignore it and to try to pretend it's not there. I don't, I think, and that's a very hackneyed, rushed way of trying to explain away what, I think that's an interesting idea. And if that was there in the novel, it definitely didn't come through. No, yeah. Definitely didn't come through. Oh, I can see it being a great, great argument to make and theme in the book, but it showed no sign of that whatsoever in the movie. And I think that's really the problem. You have a book that I'm sure in the book, it was probably a little more thought through. You had this kind of uh, concept you're dealing with not spoon feeding the audience or the reader on what's happening, but just enough to know, okay, is this affecting 
are, are is it affecting the people's their own brains to cause them to see things or react a different way or is it truly the visionary that they're seeing something is there the theme of racism and blindfolding yourself to it but it almost got all so watered down that the movie just seemed to be concerned with we need to have people hurting themselves <laughs> and doing it in dangerous situations and leave enough survivors to make an interesting plot going forward we don't really care what causes the things to happen right we just want these things to happen so we can get sandra bullock and these kids on the river that's it and that's what i felt like the whole time i felt like it was just how do we get sandra bullock and the kids to the river that we see at the end of the film which so it could have just been called instead of bird box which is kind of you know it there is a reference to it in the film as far as like yeah a bird box, but it could have just been called how to get Sandra Bullock and the kids on the river. And that's pretty that much it. It's almost like every plot beat. I felt like, yep, we know that she's going to end up on the river with these two kids. So now the whole movie is just, how do we get her down to that spot? <laughs> and that's again, not the way a film like this should play out. Um, gotcha. you know, so it's just, uh, I'll say you know, it was disappointing. I will say, because sure. it was a good opportunity to make a great thriller. And it had a couple moments I thought were pretty well done. A couple moments that were a little tense and a little frightening, but not enough of them. And again, my brain was not focused on the fear and the terror. It was focused on why did this? Why did they do this again? Or why is this happening again? Sure. And that's that's no way to enjoy a film. So. I think wrapping it up for me, you know, I think this film was helped by the fact it was distributed by Netflix. It was conveniently there over the holidays. The family was like, you know, the kids are. You know, they don't want to watch some, you know, general family fear like, ooh, let's watch this thriller that just came out. And we're like, okay, fine. So we all sat down as a family and watched it. And for me, the film that I, I did not think of A Quiet Place, the one that I kept thinking thinking of was <laughs> In Night Shyamalan's The Happening. All right. This was better than and The Happening. That, that's all I could think of. That was like, better. Well, this not was that this film is great, but it's better than The Happening. I'll tell you what, though. So, at least in The Happening. Okay, Uh-oh. the problem so with now the happening. Alan is going to no, 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 for the no. happening. <laughs> At least in the happening, there was some understanding of what it exactly was going on. Some. Hmm. It was far fetched. But at least, like, okay, they're running from the wind and the wind. Okay, well, at least they explained <laughs> the wind is carrying this kind of whether it's pollen or something like that that was getting into people's nervous systems and causing these breakdowns. Okay, far fetched does all get out, but at least I got it. Okay, so when you see the wind blowing, that's bad. Get away from Run the wind. Get away from the wind. All right. Now, every other aspect of the film was worse. Acting, <laughs> the plotting, the sure. all that. So this was better on all fronts than the happening, but at least the happening gave us something to grab a hold of to know what was driving the plot along. Fair enough. This was one where I felt like they were making it up as they go, or they just forgot about it <laughs> and said, we just need them to be blindfolded. There's something scary out there that causes them to be blindfolded. Let's see how much fun we can have putting them in situations where they're blindfolded and not, not able to see what's going on around them. And for me, I just, I needed more than that to really appreciate this film. Okay. Fair enough. But you sound like you liked it maybe a little better than I did. There again, I mean, maybe a little better. And I think the reasons why was just, it was more the viewing experience as okay. opposed to the actual movie itself. All so right. I maybe like, but yeah, I'm not. You went into it almost like somebody would go into like a, a horror slasher film. And it's like, let's just go and have a fun time right. and just right. be scared and watch. My some, expectations you know, could yeah. have been lower. You know? Mine was, I was kind of looking for something a little more high minded and it just didn't deliver. Uh, it, 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 if I was looking at for just pure cinematic thrills, yeah, it delivered some of those. And yeah. there were some moments that were pretty good. And I good. will say, I think it's pretty amazing. And I don't think there's any rationale for it. I think if they Netflix had set out 
to release this and make it as meme worthy. I mean, you know, Jimmy Fallon's been doing bird box challenges. I mean, it's just, it is everywhere in the public consciousness on social media, all the, I don't think they could do, I don't, I don't think they could do that intentionally. You couldn't buy the type of publicity that they've been getting for this movie. And the unfortunate thing is kind of what we're saying is the movie doesn't really hold up to the hype. No. Um, so that's, that's unfortunate. You know, for me, I guess I liked it a little bit better just because it was like, Oh, it's, Oh, it's a family thing. Let's just go and, you know, watch this semi scary ridiculousness. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, there again, it, it, it's not a horrible way to spend uh, two hours of your life. If you're already for free, basically, for free, if yeah. you've already got Netflix, but, um, sure. disappointing still, I felt like it could have been a lot more. I guarantee if this film had been released in traditional theaters, oh, it would have, made less than a quiet place did. Mm-hmm. Um, even with Sandra Bullock in the lead, I, I just don't think it would have made tons of money. Right. So I think they made a very shrewd move releasing it the way they did and hyping it up like they did. So yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, that kind of harkens back to what we were talking about, the release of Roma, why that was released that way. And you know what, maybe Netflix yeah. was trying to do, whereas this, you know, why release it this way instead of putting it in. Well, they're finding films that they know would not pack in the audience at a movie theater, but if people are given a chance on a Friday night of something to watch that happens to be already on their TV, right. these are good options, right. you know, for entertainment. So that I think they're making some good moves. My all issue is just with the, the writing on this film, as opposed to the decision to release it on Netflix, I think was a really smart one. So, gotcha. all right, that is bird box. Um, uh, we don't have to say if it's playing near you or not, because <laughs> if you are paying the seven ninety nine a month or nine ninety nine, whatever it is for Netflix, then uh, it is playing you got near it. You. It's playing near you. It's playing very near you. So um, it's yeah, it's a mixed bag. I'm definitely more on the negative side with it. Chris seems to be a little more ambivalent to it. Um, not a horrible way to spend two hours, but I just felt like it really missed the mark in a lot of the, especially in the writing side of things. So. All right, so that is Bird Box. We finished our reviews of The Favorite. Both huge thumbs up for us. Bird Box, eh, not so much. (laughs) Now let's move on. Uh, We're going to go do some news, and we're going to do recommendations. But first, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, a couple news items, and then we will close out the show with our recommendations of the episode. Stay tuned. You're listening to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. We'll get back to your show in a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Find out more at themesh.tv and give us feedback on what you like. And now, as promised, back to your show. Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. This podcast is kind of a joint production of the Foot Candle Film Society, which Chris and I are the founders and directors of, located in Western North Carolina, but also with TheMesh.TV. That is a podcast network located also here in Western North Carolina, where we have shows and episodes available to the general public. You can find all of the shows that we have on our network for free at TheMesh.TV. That's T-H-E-M-E-S-H.TV. You'll find all the shows that are ongoing, both older shows where episodes are archived, as well as current shows. And you can see latest episodes that we've put out on any of those those programs. So these are podcasts. So you may ask, what's different about a podcast from a listening to just an audio program or audio show on a website? Well, the idea of a podcast is that something you can subscribe to. 
So yes, you can listen to this episode. You can listen to it on the, the website, themesh.tv. But you can also subscribe to the show, and that ensures that every time we put out a new episode, you will have that new episode delivered to you through your podcast vehicle of choice, whether you're using Apple iTunes, you're using Google Play services. Uh, I think there's TuneIn Radio, there's Stitcher Radio. There's a lot of different services that play podcasts. You can find us on any of them, subscribe to them. And then whether you're listening to podcasts when you go to the gym, when you go driving somewhere, when you're walking, uh, or even in the background while you're doing other things, you have them available and you don't have to go hunt down the new episodes on your own. So I do encourage you to go visit themesh.tv, look up some of the shows, and at the end of the show, we'll tell you how you can get a hold of us and communicate with us if you've got some questions or thoughts about the program that you'd like to share. All right, so Chris, let's jump into just a couple of news items for us. Um, We always like to talk about either upcoming projects or things that we're hearing rumors about, maybe some films coming up in the coming months that are going to be worth checking uh, checking out, Uh, directors working on new things. But I want to, I want to, for my I'm not 100% done with 2018 yet. Okay. okay. I know we said last episode, it's done. We bid it farewell, but we're still hanging on just a little bit. (laughs) We reviewed The Favorite, which was technically a 2018 film. But the service we use, Letterboxd, and that's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D. So it's the newfangled way of doing websites where you drop one of the vowels. It's Letterboxd without the third E. That's a service we use, Chris and I both use, as well as a lot of other movie reviewers and movie fans, to log the films that we see. So throughout the year, even Chris and I have both alluded to it, that, hey, you can look on Letterboxd and see what we're watching. Well, Letterboxd does a nice little service at the end of the year and says, here's your year in review. This is all the stuff you've seen. These are your highest rated films and a couple other stats for that. Alan, how many films did you log? In- oh, I'm kind of embarrassed to say because I know it's a lot <laughs> lower than you. It's a lot lower than you. Should I say it? Uh, sure. 98 films. Okay. I wouldn't know that's reviewed or logged. Logged. Oh, wow. I don't review films. Okay. That's on Letterboxd. Yeah, you just I have zero. Right. Zero films reviewed. I star rate everything, but that's I don't write a review for anything. Review. Yeah. I have 260. Oh, I know. You are kind of way above me on the films. <laughs> way above me. Now, granted, you also screen a lot of films and, and kind of uh, for film festivals and True. some other things. So you, I do. you get exposed to a lot more films than I do. So that's right. that understanding. Um, yeah, I know I'm, I'm always pathetically embarrassed by my number of films. <laughs> I, I've yet to really go too high into the triple digits in a year, but that is one of my goals. Yeah. Oh. You got to have goals. Uh, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> my goal is to watch more movies, <laughs> but there is one stat that they give us that I thought was really interesting. And I cannot wait to hear what it, said for you because it told us who our most watched actor was of 2018. Yes. Now, when I saw my actor listen to my email, I'm like, that can't be right. (laughs) There's no way. But then I went and looked, I'm like, Oh, he did have a small part in this film and he was a cameo in this film. And like, after a while I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. I get it. And I can't wait to hear who it is for you because when you mentioned you floated in our production meeting, you floated, Hey, let's do this. And I was like, yeah, that's funny because I can't wait for you to hear who my most watched actor is. And you're like, Oh, well, I think it would be funny too. And I bet we have the same one. And I'm like, I don't know about that. Well, so who was, I want you to, well, let me just tell you the three movies that this actor was in. Okay. Okay. And see if you can guess it. Okay. Here are the three movies. This actor was in a star is born. Oh, excellent. It's not the same one. Okay. There's no, this actor was in black Klansman. And this actor was in Mission Impossible Fallout. Hmm. Who is it? Wow. Um, 
Black Klansman. Mm-hmm. And it's, okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the people that it I'll has. give you a hint. In Black Klansman and in A Star is Born, okay. the roles are very, very small. I in mean, Star is Born, it's basically a cameo. In Black Klansman, it's a very interesting opening to the film. Oh, Alec Baldwin? Yeah. Alec Baldwin is my most watched actor of 2018. That is... For three films. That's it. Random. In A Star is Born, he is on the Saturday Night Live recreation, and he introduces the Lady Gaga character. So he has one line. (laughs) And then in uh, Black Klansman, he is the one doing the opening scene. Right. Speaking to kind of in front of a projector slide. Yeah. Very racist tirade. Um, and then, of course, Mission Impossible Fallout. He he's, actually plays a, a decent role in that film. He's a, what you a would expect role, to say. Supporting actor in that actor. film. Right. So, yeah, my most watched actor is Alec Baldwin. So, But by who, chance, before, who did they tell you who your most watched director was? No. No. Okay. No. Did you get the most watched director? I did. Chris, um, how did you get that? That, that actually made sense to me. Uh, but we'll get there. Well, I'll go ahead and tell you because that's not the funny one. Yeah. Um, so my most watched director was David Gordon Green. And okay. the reason for this was, I know why. I, I was like, oh, yeah, it probably is. He came out with uh, the new Halloween. Mm-hmm. And as a buildup, I started back in January of 2018. I knew that film was coming out. It was one of my most anticipated. So I tried to go through his filmography the, and kind of rate and think about his work. So I watched a lot of things for the first time. Uh, I watched The Sitter, which I would not recommend. I mm. did not like that movie. Um, I revisited Pineapple Express. I watched, um, oh man, I can't remember, but I watched a lot of some of his stuff for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I think because I watched so many of his films building up to, um, well, I'm wondering, I rewatched Joe, the one that you oh, and I yeah, saw yeah, at sure. the film festival. So I think that's why it's because I definitely had one director that I watched. I wonder if the reason you were, you were given a most, uh, most watched director is because you actually saw multiple films by the same director. Right. Oh yeah. I don't think I did. Well, that could so be that maybe why I didn't get a most <laughs> like, watch because I've seen one film, seen by, one one film by every director. So gotcha. I don't remember okay. any that I would have logged multiple films by the same director last year. Okay. So, so that, yeah, my most okay. watched director was David Gordon Green. All right. What about your actor though? For all the reasons I just listened or listed. Okay. <laughs> my most watched actor, and this is just divine justice for many reasons. And you're just going to get a lot of satisfaction out of this. My most watched actor of 2018, mm-hmm. Orson Welles. <laughs> For two films? No, no. Oh, that's right. You watched, you watched a bunch of the films I watched um, right. Touch of Evil. I watched The Stranger. Oh, I watched nice. The Third Man. I watched Citizen Kane. I watched Other that's Side true. of the Wind. Yeah. And I watched um, They'll Love Me After I'm Dead. So I watched, you know. Wow, you did see a lot so of Orson Welles films. I watched a lot of Orson Welles. Well, Wells. that makes total sense. Right. And I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, Alan's going to think that is hilarious. Oh, it's awesome. Because as you know, anybody who's ever listened to this podcast, Alan likes Citizen Kane. I do. I'm not the biggest fan. Um, well, so you, it was just really, and I do say, him being my most watched actor of the year, I do say that I do have more respect for him now. I still don't like Good. Citizen Kane any more than I did before, but I have more respect yeah. for him as an actor. Although I don't really think he's a good actor, but as an artist mm-hmm. and as somebody who was trying to achieve a lot of stuff, I admire his ambition and what all he tried to do. So. See, I think you you kind of skew your results <laughs> because you did these whole anthology, like kind I want to watch marathons yeah. of these either actor or director. And by doing so, you basically built up your own most watched 
But mine I was a, never anticipated no, Orson Welles. Mine was a much more natural, just these are just happened to be the films I'm reviewing or watching. And sure. it just so happened Alec Baldwin was in three of them this year. Gotcha. That are films I, I, I caught up with. So very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, it also shared us our highest rated, which shouldn't really come as any surprise because it's the films that we basically talked about in our top five. Well, and um, I, yeah, right. Although mine had a spillover from 2017 ah. because mother, a film I really highly rated. Uh, you and I split on that one. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. 2017. It was a 2017 film. I didn't see till 2018. 2018. Yeah. So it had, but it had American animals. Won't you be my neighbor and mother as kind of the three highest rated logs in the year. Now, granted, I think the favorite would probably be up there in that four and a half star range for me now right. uh, if I were to add it back in. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So thank you, Letterbox. We appreciate the year in review. <laughs> Thanks for watching us all this past year and monitoring our every move and letting us know, uh, <laughs> letting us know in the case of, of Chris, how exactly how many films he spent time watching this year. Me, I feel woefully inadequate with the number of films I saw. So, yeah. All right, Chris. So uh, you've got something to talk about, don't you? Yeah, I got a kind of an update, and I was kind of surprised about how many big horror movies are coming out. You and I have reviewed a couple. You mentioned Hereditary. I think, was it in your top five, or is it just out of your top five? For just year? out of my top five. It was in my top ten. But well, Hereditary yeah. was a big one um, from this past year. A year before that, we had things like Get Out. You know, so it's horror movies have kind of they've even the david gordon green halloween yeah, mission sure. yeah it was and last so there's year there's been a little mm-hmm. bit of a resurgence it was also you know yeah, has been popular. That was last year so coming up in 2019 we have quite the slate hmm. of that i'm already aware of and i don't know a lot about horror movies but i've been made aware of these and just share them i think we might have mentioned jordan peele's us we did our, yeah i mentioned that as one of those i'm really curious about for next year right. it's not my most expect highly anticipated but it is one I'm probably the most curious about because is was get out a fluke. Was it a one-time deal where he just kind of turned out a really a kind of some consider a horror classic in his first film, or is it a streak? He's going to continue the, the, the trailer is definitely unnerving enough to know, to think that there's something creative going on there. Absolutely. So that's coming out March 19th. Uh, we have, we had it already. We have the second part of chapter two, as they're calling it, which will be yeah. out September 6th. Which I'm, I am looking forward to. And I'll tell you, because I, I generally liked the chapter one. It wasn't perfect, but I thought it was a pretty good telling. I, I, I thought it was too heavily relying on CGI at times and some other things. But I thought overall it had some good moments to it. I think you were higher on it than I was. I was. Yeah. Um, however... Like you, I am looking forward. I'm interested in Chapter 2 because yeah. of the cast that they have doing the adults. Well, James McAvoy, yeah. Jessica Chastain, Bill Hader. Um, it's just they've yeah. got a lot of good people there. Well, so. and I'm hoping they're building. I actually think, you know, how they present Chapter 2 could be really interesting. It could. I always liked as a kid, you know, the old It miniseries on TV. I liked the, the kids' side better than the adult side. Hmm. So I'm kind of hoping this maybe reverses it, where maybe they do a really great bang-up job with the adult side, because I always thought that was the lacking part of the films before. So we'll see. While we're on Stephen King, we'll mention, you know, why not mention the other project? Because he, he's a hot property right now, Alan. Yes, he is. He's a hot property. We've got... This uh, Mr. King. I hear he's going no, places. He's, he's a big guy. Um, Pet Cemetery. They're yeah. doing a reboot of that. There have already been previews out. comes out April 5th. Um, how are you feeling about the new Pet so, Cemetery? So... Very similar to the way I feel about it in that growing up, 
Pet Cemetery and It were the two books that my my parents had on the bookshelf that I was petrified of. Okay. They I didn't read them. Okay. My parents told me kind of the gist of the of the books. Mm-hmm. So I was terribly excited when both of them were turned into films. The you had the uh Tim Curry version of mm-hmm. It which was on TV and I was it was a little it was fine. I'd like the first night which was more focused on the kids, but when it got to the second night with the adults, it, I thought it really was kind of dumb. Um, and, I, and critics on, say animatronic it, spider was well, amazing. Critics say it definitely did not hold a candle to the book. Sure. I like the fact that I think the one we saw this year of it was a little more faithful to the book than maybe that TV version was. So I kind of hoping the same thing with Pet Cemetery. Okay. I, I think the movie was had some scary moments, but overall, I didn't feel like it had quite the level of, of horror and just uh, dread that the book supposedly had, I'm hoping they go a little further with this one and make it really terrifying. Well, um, it looks you, like it from the trailer. So the we'll trailer see. looks interesting. You know, you see that John Lithgow plays the role of kind of the older curmudgeon yeah. man. And instead just, of Fred Gwynn, uh, Mr. <laughs> Herman Munster in the first film. Yeah. And stylistically in the trailer, they kind of have a, your next vibe going on where they have, instead of adults wearing masks, it's kids wearing animal masks. And they, they kind of get the creep factor down. Yeah. And, they're, you know, they're like playing this drum beat in the trailer. Will it amount to anything? I don't know. I don't know. But a uh, well put together trailer. We'll have to wait. And well, see. Jason Clark starring in it, too. So they've got, you know, a pretty good actor attached to it. And uh, John, like you said, John Lithgow. I, I'm, I'm curious. I want to hear that it's really good and really creepy and really scary. Um, if we're getting a little bit of a renaissance of Stephen King movies, kind of getting a chance to redo some of the ones that didn't work so well, can I offer up and say we need a redo of Cujo? I'd be happy with that. A little more, a little more in depth Cujo version. Uh, okay. I could see. You know, they tried to do one of uh, of uh, what was a sissy basic movie? Oh shoot, um, Carrie. Carrie. You know, they did a remake of Carrie a few years ago that was supposedly not that great. Right. The Didn't original do. I've actually recommended on the show. Oh no, the, the yeah. original that was one of the Stephen King movies that was really good in the original version. So that was fine. Um, what else do we need? Do we need a what's another film we need? A Christine, another one about the car. Yes, that is do a remake of that one. Yeah, let's do a renaissance of, of Stephen King movies and right the wrongs of the past history ones <laughs> that were not so good. Well, rounding out the Stephen King movies that I'm aware of that mm-hmm. are coming out. Um, tying into our earlier discussion about Bird Box, this will be coming straight to Netflix. Um, Patrick Wilson is in it, and it's an adaptation of a story, that, a short story that Stephen King did. It's called Into the Tall Grass, hmm. and the director is Vincenzo Natale, which you're saying, I don't know who that is. Well, actually, you've heard of this guy before. He did Splice, which I think, I don't know if you and I reviewed, but we talked about. I oh, think. yeah, I remember Splice. Okay, yeah. so he did Splice. He's done kind of the early sci-fi genre horror movie called cube. So he's done a couple of, couple of things. Um, and this is going to be his next thing as he's doing this movie for Netflix adaptation. And actually Netflix has had Gerald's game mm-hmm. and then they had 1922, which were both straight to Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, thumb. So this is like, I guess another in that series of Stephen King, Netflix adaptations. Yeah. I'm I'm curious just to see what they do with it. Well, and you add to that whole mix too, like Hulu has had Castle Rock, the show mm-hmm. that's been kind of inspired by Stephen King characters and work. I think they're working on a second season for that soon. So, yeah, Stephen King's definitely had a kind of a renaissance of uh, in different media forms in the last year or two. 
Talking about a reboot, Alan. Got another okay. one coming up June 21st. Aubrey yeah. Plaza. You okay. excited about Aubrey Plaza? You know, no, but go ahead. But oh, you don't going. like... Uh, well, don't like she's, I think she's overplayed her role as the uh, dour, uh, slightly goth uh, uh, girl. I want to see her do something different. So maybe this is it. Oh, I don't know. Uh, she, she is back in the reboot of the 1988 murderous doll classic child's play is she really yes she's going to be in the child's play remake she is okay no i'm actually you know what if they're playing <laughs> yeah, it ironically if they're playing I it think for knowing that she's involved yeah i think that's if that's the direction they're taking i think that works actually so I, i'm okay with that okay i'm all right with that okay i got three more here sure um the next film from director ari aster he did hereditary yes. it's called midsummer and it's Oof. out august 9th okay and this one is a doesn't give a lot of description but it's going to be another creepy cult type movie, Ugh. and this one take <laughs> this one takes place in Sweden. So, okay. well, Hereditary, yeah, got to me. It was creepy. Um, I, I I think I like I said in the last show, I admired the fact that it didn't rely on jump scares. It was truly just building tension and things sometimes in the scene that you have to like think look twice to see if they're really there or not. I love that style of of horror film more than the the jump scare one. So count me in for wanting to see it, but man, I'm already, it took me almost a year to get around <laughs> to seeing hereditary or at least okay. six months. I don't know how long it'll take me to see this next one. If I hear this is as, as frightening for me as, as hereditary was. Okay. Um, the next one is adapted from a book and Alan, I know you say like, I don't read. I don't read. You know what? I bet you there's a high chance that you have read this book. Or you might have had it read to you. I don't know. By a librarian. Uh, That's right. This is being turned into a horror movie. No. It's scary scary stories to tell in the dark. And they used to have copies of this. If it's the one I'm thinking of, they are kind of like ghost stories, but they're kind of weird. And then ring a bell. No. See, I I think I can actually like, and they're classic stories that Alvin Schwartz was the writer who did. And they're like little short stories and they're probably about 10 or 15. They had them in a really little book and they would put it out at Halloween time in my middle school. I don't know. Wow. No, I'm not. (laughs) Here's the thing. I'm I'm drawing a blank. Guillermo del Toro Hmm. is adapting these stories for the screen. They've got another guy directing it, but he's producing it. Okay. And they, you know, the line is the classic Alvin Schwartz stories that have terrified generations are being adapted as a movie. Hmm. So if it is the scary stories of Tell the Dark with like the picture that I'm saying, like, I think that's amazing. And they are kind of creepy and done in kind of a, it would be kind of like a Twilight Zone movie. Mm-hmm. would be interesting is if they actually make it kind of PG-13. So it is scary, but yet like, you know, yeah, not age. kitty friend. Yeah, not like horror, horror, like horror. Yeah. horror. So I don't know. Guillermo del Toro's well, scary stories. Well, sure. Dark. Okay. That could be Sounds interesting. Like, eh. Could be. I just I don't have any connection to the source you don't have material. Any so, to the books. See, I was hoping you'd that would be one book. Books. Those are those things with pages, sheets of chapters. paper in the middle with yeah. words printed on them. Yeah, right. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Last film. Yeah. Um, Robert Eggers, who did The Witch, he was the director oh, yeah. of The Witch. He's got a new one coming out. Don't give a whole lot of detail. It's period. It's another period horror piece. And it's shot in black and white, mm-hmm. stars William Defoe and Robert Pattinson, and it's just called The Lighthouse. I thought I heard another project that this guy was attached to at one point, but I guess maybe that didn't go I forward. Th- or You're talking about Nosferatu? Oh, yeah, yeah, that he was it. He is still attached to it. I think this one is this just is kind finished, of first. finished first. So, yeah, I think that one has All been right. bumped to 2020, and this is 2020. That's another one. As far as I'm concerned, the two guys to follow right now for horror, 
one that did Hereditary, the one that did uh, did uh, uh, The Witch. Okay. To me, that's those are Harry creep- Astor and Robert. Eggers. Those are creepier films for me. Those are much more effective than mass murders, jump sure. scares, all that blood and guts. I I won't creep and dread and both of those had them in spades so i'm really anxious to see how their next two films are with those two directors okay so that's that's the slate that i'm All aware right. of good i'm i'm on board i'm ready I, I say bring it on i'm not a horror film guy <laughs> but if i know a horror film is well made Right. And does something a little different or a little creative with its with its subject matter. I'm I'm all for it, and I want to give it a shot. So, good. All right. Well, that's some movie news for you. We got a lot of films coming up in the next year. Uh, you know, Chris and I had our last episode. In case you're, you're curious, we did talk about a few films that we're highly anticipating for 2019. I mean, Chris, we already we we mentioned all the sequels and big blockbuster franchise films, but you and I picked out four or five films kind of collectively that we do feel like are worth checking into and, and curious about for the rest of the year. So right. add some of those horror films to that list as well. And we've got, could have an interesting cinematic year. Could be a lot of fun. All right. Well, let's move on to the last section of our show. This is where Chris and I both recommend a film for you. Something we think is worth checking out, whether it be a new film that's available online or it be a classic film that we would think is worth revisiting. Um, Chris, you've been doing a lot of the talking for the last little bit. So how about I'll go ahead and jump in with my recommendation, if that's sure. okay. How about it? Uh, I have talked on this show about my admiration or my love for films that have to do with uh, comedians, like real life, you know, documentaries about either comedy or the art of making comedy. I, uh, you know, we talked about the film, uh, the documentary about the Dana Carvey show that I recommended probably about a year or so ago. Um, so a documentary has come out that has been around for a, a little bit. I think it was out in theaters maybe back in the summertime or early fall. But I actually saw it on uh, CNN, I believe. Again, CNN has been showing a lot of documentaries lately. And this film is about a comedian, comedian, um, Gilda Radner. So the film is Love, Gilda. And, you know, I will turn on and watch these documentaries no matter what, even if they're not the best made documentary. I just I'm always fascinated by the subjects and I want to absorb the information. And this film is still fairly traditional in its approach. What I think set it apart is that, you know, Gilda Radner, obviously Saturday Night Live, um, she gained a lot of fame through the show. Then she became kind of famous in her own right with a stage uh, a Broadway show and uh, being in a few films. And then she became a, a, a partner in life with uh, Gene Wilder. Then she she did pass away uh, from, from illness uh, later on in life. And an illness she battled for quite a while. So I was just fascinated to watch the documentary anyway to learn a little bit more of the, the background of, of her as a, as a character. She's not someone I've ever really read up a lot on or really followed because she was a little before my time. You sure. know, I was a big Saturday Night Live guy back in the 80s and definitely in the 90s. She was there at the beginning in the mid-late 70s and early 80s. Um, but what I thought this documentary did really well is that it did weave in her diary. So she kept a diary through most of her life. So we actually would hear her. I know she wrote memoirs from it and published a book with her diary. It would weave in passages from her diary, both handwritten portions on the screen, as mm. well as her voiceover of some portions, I guess she did for her audiobooks and, and, and other things too. And so it was nice to kind of hear from the subject right. as well as the people around her. So it wasn't just all of her friends and family talking about how great she was. 
you heard her in her own words where she had her moments of anxiety and her moments of depression and -hmm. what she was really thinking in her life at the time. So it's just a nice other element to bring into the documentary to kind of set it a little apart from just your standard, let's just show clips and interviews about this person. Right. So I liked it. I thought it was a good, good film, good documentary. And, um, the fact that, you know, CNN was showing it pretty regularly. I know you can get it online right now in a lot of different places, but it was pretty well done. I may be a little biased only because I like Saturday Night Live uh-huh. as an institution. Sure. I will pretty much watch any documentary about any key performer from that show or any phase <laughs> of that show. So that roped me in automatically. So you're waiting for the Horatio Sands? <laughs> well, maybe every okay. everybody from Saturday Night Live. Or maybe a few I might skip. And plus, I'm also a big Gene Wilder fan. So, of course, knowing that he was going to play a big factor in her, her life. And I wanted to see how that dynamic worked. Um, it was interesting for me. But I will say I thought it was a, a fairly well-made documentary that's worth checking out. If you have any passing interest in her or the background of comedy, especially in the seventies and eighties. So, so love Gilda. Um, yeah, I think you can find it just about anywhere online right now. And you can maybe catch it on CNN. I'm I'm sure. I'm sure if you have a DVR or some sort of way to search and record it, you should be able to find it here the next, I would imagine the next couple of weeks. So yeah. What about you? What have you got to share with us? Well, um, I'm recommending mine sheerly based off the title. It's not true, but, um, (laughs) actually a couple of reasons. We have been talking about Netflix a lot, mm-hmm. and so my recommendation is on Netflix. It's a Netflix original. It's Black Mirror Bandersnatch. Oh, and the Bandersnatch. Bandersnatch. How can you not like the title of that? So it's, I guess, an overly long episode of Black Mirror, so they've kind of released it as a feature, as a film. It's mm-hmm. it's 90 minutes, depending on how you mm-hmm. watch it, and this is where some of my recommendation comes in. It's basically... An interactive film, kind of like if you remember back in the 80s or whatever, they had choose-your-own-adventure books. Mm -hmm. That's basically what this is set after. It's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure movie. Okay. Meaning at certain points, the movie is continuing to play. Like you still see the action on screen, but it kind of shrinks up a little bit. And you see two options below the screen. And you have a timer that's kind of going. So like... The characters are continuing to act. Everything's continuing to happen. And you have to make a choice before the timer runs out. I think if the timer runs out, I never let it run out. I imagine it would just kind of go to black and it would the movie would be over. So it's wow. like it's kind of like a time bomb effect. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so you you know, you know put these choices. And they're, sometimes you're like, what? And they don't even kind of make sense. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. And you just have to kind of choose them really quick. Um, hmm. From a movie start stop you know like beginning middle end obviously i can see people being frustrated by this because they think it's nothing more than a gimmick to me it was still satisfying within the construct of being a black mirror episode which is making meta commentary about technology Mm -hmm. pluses and minuses how people become obsessed with it the downsides of that um and then you're kind of becoming obsessed with it because you're like wait which choice do i make and so it's like you are participating in being obsessive about technology um very hmm. meta. I liked it. Um, typical Black Mirror fashion. It is very dark. Not um, sure. Yeah. I, tr- I actually tried on purpose when I was watching it. And I, I don't know how long You tried to do like the, the good. Uh, I tried the, to like make the rosiest ending possible. Yeah, and it still and was like really it. dark. No, the, whatever you do, it's going to end badly. It's going to mm. end poorly. So, But I mean, that's Black Mirror. Sure. So, But I still found it really enjoyable. Um I one of the actors in it. Let me try to figure out. Uh, Will Poulter. I kind of like. Yeah. Kind of like some of the stuff that he's mm-hmm. in. He's a recognizable face. 
Um, he plays a game designer in this and does a really awesome job. So um, it's basically the story is a young guy tries to become a game designer based. He wants to design a game based on this, basically a choose your own adventure story mm-hmm. that he like grew up reading. And I think the book is called Bandersnatch, which is where the mm-hmm. name comes from that he tries to make the game after. Okay. And, um, yeah, and it doesn't go well. <laughs> so, um, but it's, it's, hmm. if you're up for experimentation, you know, Netflix yeah. puts out a lot of movies. This is something, obviously they're like, let's try this. Sure. Um, interesting premise. I, um, I love the concept. I actually think when I first heard about it announced, I thought that's, going to be great. Yeah. You know, not that it's the first time it's ever done that. They, there's been other uh, video media that have done that kind of, I mean, even you go back to video games, like a dragon's sure. lair type of game where it's like choices and you just, that controls the, the video you're watching. But this seems to be the most polished implementation I think I've seen in highest budget version of it. Oh yeah. I think um, of black mirror episodes. Grant, this runs to be like a 90 minute episode. And most are like 45 minutes or a little yeah. over an hour. I think this is one of the most expensive Black Mirror wow. things that's ever been made because they shot so much footage. Well, as I heard if you know you were to stitch all the footage together for all the different scenarios and endings, it's like over three and a half hours or I something like that. It. So um, I'm fascinated. I will just give one little gripe. <laughs> okay. Don't – I haven't watched it yet. Okay. But don't, don't give me – don't hype up and announce this really cool technology for a film that you can watch on Netflix – and Netflix is available on a lot of different devices. Mm-hmm. I use an Apple TV. Apple TV does not have the interactive function on it. Really? Actually, when you go on an Apple TV, and I think it's on a Chromecast as well. When See, you go I, on the Apple I TV. I this on my laptop. So you're fine. Huh. But if you were to watch on an Apple TV, which is where I watch all my, all my movies, um, it actually plays a little one-minute commercial. And a narrator voice comes up and says, we're sorry, but... You, your device is currently not equipped to handle the interactive features of this film. So huh. you need to go watch it on your phone, your iPad, or your computer, or some other device. But the Apple TV was not set up to do the interactive function. So does it just play? It won't play it at all? No. It won't even play the, like nope. a 90-minute? It just version. plays that one-minute little huh. commercial and a apology, here's what you need to do type of thing. And what's interesting is as soon as I played that, I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? I got an email from Netflix, like that same moment that says, hi, we saw that you were trying to watch Black Mirror Bandersnatch and we're sorry, but Apple TV, you can't watch it on there. So here's some other devices you could watch it on. So, so you're irritated, but actually that's well, I'm irritated customer, because that's, customer. No, that's forward. fine. Yeah. But the more customer friendly thing would be we have a decent percentage of our users who are on Apple TVs. We should have figured out a way to make it work. I get it. It's it's probably a unique technology that maybe the framework didn't work for that device. I, w- I wonder. So I wonder if it's any TV stream. Like I wonder if like a Slingbox. I wonder if you. Can no, watch. no. I heard. I read up online. It's truly the Apple TV and Chromecast. I think Roku is fine. I huh. think Amazon Fire Stick is fine. Interesting. But it's just the Apple TV and the Chromecast were the two I heard. It will not work on. Interesting. I was hoping it would be something they would release a patch or update to the Netflix app in the next few days, and they never did. And everything I read online seems to be they're saying, nope, that's it. We're just we're not going to support it on those. Hmm. So that's disappointing for me. I don't normally watch my movies on my laptop. I like having it on my TV and my sound system, and that's what I like. But that's fine. I will watch it on my laptop now, probably this weekend, 
you and Netflix, fine, but <laughs> I do want to see it. And it's um, worth seeing. If you like Black Mirror, if you don't oh, I love like it. Black Mirror, don't bother. No, I love Black Mirror episodes. Yeah. Have we ever talked about I mean, I know it's not a movie, but you know. I don't know if um, you've maybe rep- recommended it. I think I did recommend before? it in a way because the, the first episode of the la- the latest season, the one where they it's basically a, a a replication of an old Star Trek. Yes. Um it was a pretty long episode, if I remember correctly. It's almost approaching that short film uh category, so I thought it was worth recommending that particular episode. Uh, was one of my favorites. And so. The captain in that episode was in Game Night. Can't remember the. Yeah, it's name. uh. Oh shoot! You said his name, I'd remember, but I can't. remember. He's in it. Game Night. He was <laughs> in uh, Black Mirror. Oh my gosh, what is his name? He was in The Master. He was in a bunch of other films. What is his name? He plays the police officer. Yes. In Game Night. Are you um, looking it up? I am. So just stall. Phil, Alan. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he's a really accomplished actor. I like a lot of things he's in. Game Night, he had a great part as the police officer cop next door that was always dis- disinvited. Uh, Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons. How Sorry, could we forget Jesse. Mr. Plemons? We forgot your name. <laughs> so Jesse Plemons was in that episode of black mirror that i thought was really good he was he yeah he's been in like the fx series of fargo he was in yeah. a little bit of breaking bad yeah, yeah. so he's in- i remember him from uh friday night lights okay. was the show i know he was on that i first saw him in so anyway black mirror yes great show episodes are kind of hit or miss but i do think that one uh the one that he's in first episode of this latest season is one of my favorite episodes. It's just bizarre and twisted enough. And I love the faithful recreation they did of the old Star Trek environment and tropes. It was really fun. Anyway, got off track. Back on track <laughs> here. Uh, Black Mirror, Bandersnatch is your recommendation. Yes. And then my recommendation was the film, uh, shoot, I love Gilda. So both available online. One you need the Netflix subscription for, and you need something other than an Apple TV to watch it. And then Love Gilda is available He's on a lot bitter. of different outlets right now. What? He's not bitter. At all. No, no, of course not. So that is our show for today. So the favorite, enthusiastic thumbs up from Chris, both Chris and I. Bird Box, um, uh, passable grade, but me and probably a little less so, um, with some real concerns about that film. We talked about upcoming horror films. We talked about Letterboxd, most watched actors. And then we gave our recommendations here at the end of the show. We hope you've enjoyed listening. But Chris, some people may have questions. They may agree or disagree with our takes on some of the films or just want to talk about any of the news items we shared. If so, how how should they go about getting a hold of us? Just send us an email at at info at the mesh dot TV and just mention Foot Candle Films in the subject line. That's probably the easiest way to get in touch with us um you can also i do write reviews every once in a while on letterbox we've talked about that a lot on the show um you can attach me a note on there to one of my reviews and i can try to respond alan is also on letterbox but not quite as frequently doing reviews i don't do reviews on there so just don't go expecting me to write anything because i typically don't but i will say that i at least log all the movies i've seen and try to star rate them as soon as we've talked about them here on the show and also as far as feedback we also uh, have a lot of our episodes up in apple itunes i think they keep a rolling list of about a hundred if you're in itunes signing up or subscribing and you want to give us a rating we always appreciate ratings because that helps us reach more listeners yep so we will be back with another episode in the next couple of weeks. And until then, uh, thanks for listening. Please check us out online and give us any feedback you may have. And we'll look forward to talking to you at the next episode. See you in the ticket line. Watch
Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.